JFK and the Enduring Secret. I'm your host, Jeff Crudell. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to the podcast. Today's episode is episode 109. Sometimes you have to zoom in, and sometimes you have to zoom out. Wandering around in Minsk with Lee Harvey Oswald doesn't exactly get us the same thing in this case as listening to Roger Craig identify Oswald in Fritz's office the afternoon of November 22, 1963. But there is a reason for going back to the USSR with Oswald. We have to remember that. We really have to zoom out from the wander, and we have to remember that we are trying to understand the bigger picture so that the jumble and facts of circumstances that we are trying to piece together make more sense. We are, in short, trying to understand who this young man really was. And to do that, you have to study his personal history as much of it as we can, and place it into context. Let me wander for a second and say something about a topic that is not directly related to the study of Oswald, but analogous in some ways. You see, the last 25 years or so in the United States have made us somewhat numb to assassination, and even more so as it relates to mass shootings. The group of mass shootings by young people, almost unheard of in my generation and before, But now, hardly anyone can name a fraction of all of them, all those that have occurred in, say, the last 25 years or so. My point here is that Oswald was young. He was 24 when he allegedly shot our president. He was impressionable. He was an ex-Marine trained in military ways, and he had arguably a difficult youth that clearly lacked some of the elements of stability and parental and other influences that generally guide good people when they are growing up. And we know the lack of those things can breed the mental and emotional circumstances and conditions that lead to tragedy. In Oswald's case, that is precisely the narrative adopted by the Warren Commission and anti-conspiratorialists. But the truth of the matter is, well, not always, of course. It doesn't always lead to that. However, it is true that in this modern era, we see it happen over and over. And the internet plays a part in it, for sure. The nakedness of these tragic realities lying so plainly all over the internet for everyone to see. And for a sick mind to take and feed off of that. In a quest to find relevance, or at least to imitate for some strange reason. So, the truth is that in our society today, we really don't fully understand why all these shootings have become so commonplace but we certainly know key factors that influence the characters involved and circumstances that have contributed to their happenings. That is why each one of these shootings is studied in depth and in turn gives us context to better explain each circumstance. But sadly, we all know it's an exercise to explain the unexplainable. Now, I am not saying that we cannot explain Oswald, because Remember now, we are not even sure if Oswald did it. So the question is broader here. We are not trying to work backwards from a firmly convicted Lee Harvey Oswald. It's not like he was seen 
point blank, by many witnesses, in broad daylight, taking the shots. We are not working backwards trying to figure out why he pulled the trigger. Rather, we are working forwards to progress our thoughts on just who he was and what his state of mind was in order to determine if he even had the capacity and context to do it, for him to have been the one to have pulled the trigger. And these two things, what I've just described, are two wholly different exercises in life. Oswald's time in Minsk was filled with some of the things that a typical young person would experience at that age. And there is no doubt that being 21 in Soviet Russia in 1960, in and of itself, placed Oswald in an incubator of growth and solicited a pivot in life that was, by definition, extraordinary. How many people do something that life-changing at that age? The facts are well known about that period of his life, thanks to the surveillance by the KGB and the preservation of memory by his friends there. And we'll explore more today before we finally leave Minsk in the next couple of episodes and head home. But the real question is, what do the sum of these life experiences do to the mind of Lee Harvey Oswald? Every researcher who reads and studies the record of it has their own opinion. You can take the anti-conspiratorial position and say that this period spawned more disillusionment and failure for Oswald and helped to develop the seeds of mental illness that lead a lone gunman to take the shot. Others see the experiences differently, even with some clear elements of maturity beginning to happen, as you would expect from a 20-year-old just getting out of the military. As a juror, you will have to assess it and sum it up yourself, because this period is influential in so many ways. But before any of us make any final formed assumptions about it, let's at least listen to more of the study of Minsk. More of the personal moments of Lee Harvey Oswald as he finds more than one love and eventually finds a wife and makes his pivot back to the United States. So, without further ado, let's listen to episode 109 of JFK, The Enduring Secret. In those days in Russia, you didn't get into the country as a tourist unless you were booked through one of the state tourist agencies. The agency was in-tourist, in Oswald's case, and you heard from the agent in a previous episode of JFK, The Enduring Secret. Rosa Kuznetsova was the agent, and she was more than a tour agent. She was a KGB informant. That wasn't special for Oswald. That is just how they did it in Russia. Rosa turned out to be more than a transient connection that simply helped to get Oswald in the country and then situated. She became a friend of Oswald's. The choices for entertainment in Minsk were slim, and Oswald liked the theater and the opera and even an occasional movie. Rosa was there to help him along, interpret the Russian when there was something that he did not understand. They became companions of sort, and for at least the first several months of Oswald's transition to Minsk, they would be together almost every night. And it was perfect for the real mission that Rosa had, the job of watching Oswald and reporting in routinely to the KGB. Oh, and there was Pavel Glavachev, who turned out to be Oswald's best friend while in Russia. 
Pavel worked with Oswald at the radio factory, and Pavel's father was a decorated World War II veteran. Only Pavel, too, was approached by the KGB shortly into Oswald's time there and forced to become an informant about Oswald's activities and thinking. Earlier, we mentioned Andrew Zeiger, who was the plant's deputy engineer at the Minsk radio factory. He was a Polish immigrant who had immigrated to Argentina in 1938 as the Nazis were tightening their reign, and then he eventually left Argentina to come to the Soviet Union in 1955. Zeiger spoke some English, so that made for a bit of natural gravitation to one another, and he and his wife Maria actually entertained Oswald at their house fairly often. Zeiger and his wife had two daughters, Anita and Eleonora, and Oswald apparently dated them both at various times. Gradually, Oswald was building a social network of his own in the Soviet Union. His relationship with Ernst Titovitz, a young medical student who spoke English, was, as I have also previously mentioned, another important relationship, and this, too, was a coveted relationship for Oswald. They would practice each other's native language together. Oswald suspected he was being watched and monitored by the Russian authorities, and one thing he decided to do as a result was to turn up his anti-U.S. rhetoric contained in his outbound correspondence in the presumed hopes that if the Russians were reading his outgoing mail, that would give them confidence that he was the real deal and not some spy sent by the U.S. government. Consequently, his tongue got sharper, particularly as he wrote more intimately to his brother Robert while he was there in Russia. No one knows for sure whether Oswald at this point had become more deeply entangled with the Russians. One interesting aspect of the records that the Russians and others kept on Oswald is that virtually all of the time he was in Russia was accounted for in some way, primarily by the surveillance records, and there was a period of time in late 1959, beginning in November, and running pretty much through the end of the year, that some researchers believe that Oswald was unaccounted for, and that possibly he was heavily interrogated by the KGB. This suspicion was likely because Oswald was reported to have been holed up in his room about eight hours a day, practicing his Russian, using stereo records to help. To some, this was suspicious and caused to believe that the documentation on his whereabouts was doctored to make it look as if his language studies were the complete focus. These researchers' conclusions were that the KGB did this and probably took Oswald somewhere during this time frame where they interrogated him intensely, and perhaps this is the period of conversion where, if he was going to become a spy for the other side, the Russians would determine his fate and decide yes or no on that course of action. There is no definitive answer to this question, but Oswald himself, in his own diary, does set forth that he was indeed intensely studying Russian during this time and spending most of his time doing it. And, indeed, Ernst Titovitz confirms that much of that went on. If that is the case, then the case of the missing six weeks is easily explainable. Either way, certainly a good bit of the time is likely explainable by this set of circumstances and attributable to this exercise. But one may never know the full answer on just what the Russians did do, if anything, 
during this lost six-week time period. They paid Oswald well enough, too. He was making the equivalent of about $150 a month, which in Russia at the time gave him quite a bit of money to live on. So here he is with a small apartment by himself in one of the better apartment buildings in the city of Minsk with a balcony that afforded a beautiful view of the Svishlak River. That first summer in Minsk, Oswald joined a hunting club and purchased a shotgun eventually going on several summer hunting trips. This first summer there may have been the height of his contentment in this new Soviet environment. Oswald had expressed his desires to the Russian authorities that he would have liked to have poured himself into studies, gotten admitted to the local university. But that was not to be for this young man with only a formal ninth grade education. Then in June of 1960, he met Ella German. He described her in his historic diary as a silky black-haired Jewish beauty with fine dark eyes and skin as white as snow. And he later said he fell in love with her, perhaps the minute he saw her. The relationship would blossom, and they dated through the fall of 1960. The pivotal moment came during the holidays late in 1960. Oswald was invited to spend New Year's Eve with Ella and her family, and he did. On his way home from the New Year's Eve affair, he would make a decision to propose marriage to Ella. He returned the next day only to make the proposal and have his request completely rebuffed. It was no, a clear no. He would write about it in an entry marked on January 2, 1961 in his diary, and he would say this, Standing on the doorstep, I propose. She hesitates and then refuses. My love is real, but she has none for me. I am stunned, and she snickers at my awkwardness as I turn and go. I realize that I am too stunned to think, and then I realize that she was never serious with me. I am miserable. This rebuff by Ella German may have been the pivot, the turning point for Oswald that brought together many elements of surging unhappiness that were building within him as he began to realize that life in the Soviet Union was not, perhaps, what he thought it would be. The work at the factory was becoming more and more an exercise in drudgery for him, and it was apparently beginning to show in his performance, a clear change from the initial success he had achieved in the early days at the factory. The KGB surveillance during this time points to the fact that he developed a bad attitude at the factory, and his productivity declined. All of this was taking place, too, in the season of Soviet winter, which we all know is nothing less than stone cold. Winters like that have an effect, and certainly on a man who grew up as far south on the globe as Dallas and New Orleans. He documented other complaints in his historic diary as well, about his life in Soviet society. Things like compulsory mass gymnastics, required attendance at trade union meetings the collective work that was required in order to bring in the annual harvest from agricultural crops during each growing season. All of this together was not an enticing elixir, and combine it with the fact that there was little for Oswald to do in a society so closed off and somewhat devoid of the things that he was used to in the States. Well, it was piling on. And the Soviet system that he was now experiencing, its regiment and its bureaucracy, led Oswald to believe that the Soviet brand of communism was 
something less than the perfect example of pure Marxism, and, in fact, that it might have been a failure as a system. But that didn't stop Oswald from still believing that Marxism, as a political framework and social construct, was still the utopia. It was just not to be found in Soviet Russia. And if we fast forward back to the WDSU broadcasts in New Orleans, the ones you heard earlier in earlier episodes, all of this seems to explain why Oswald would refer to himself as a Marxist and not a communist when interrogated on that radio show in 1963. And perhaps this was foundational when we wonder why he might have viewed Cuba as the latest chance for the world to get communism right, after the Soviets, in his mind, clearly did not. Oswald's thoughts moved quickly in this time frame. On January 4th, just two days after Ella German rejected his marriage proposal, he would make an important entry in his historic diary. It read as follows. I am starting to reconsider my desire about staying. The work is drab, and the money I get has nowhere to be spent. No nightclubs or bowling alleys, and no places of recreation, except the trade union dances. I have had enough. Coincidentally, on the same date, he was asked by the Soviet authorities handling his visa if he still was desirous of achieving Soviet citizenship. The timing was perfect for Oswald. He said no to them and simply asked for a one-year extension of his temporary papers that were the basis for his staying in the country. Soon thereafter, Oswald would make the decision to reach out to the U.S. Embassy in February 1961 and begin the process of making his way back to America, reciting the fact that he was still an American citizen, despite the fact that he had done a pretty good job of trying to give up his American citizenship during those early moments when he was entering the USSR. And had it not been for Consul Richard Snyder at the American Embassy, that very well might have happened. Snyder deftly understood that a 20-year-old man wishing to give up citizenship was a brash move that was best dealt with by maneuvering a cooling-off period. And it worked. Oswald never came back to the U.S. Embassy after that initial request. And so, he didn't technically renounce his American citizenship. What a reversal of fate this was. It was less than a year prior to this new moment that one of Oswald's letters to his brother Robert would read, I will never leave this country, the Soviet Union, under any conditions, and I will never return to the United States, which is a country I hate. And yet now, Oswald was citing the fact that he should be allowed to return to the United States because he was still a U.S. citizen. But Oswald surely recalled the entirety of those earlier conversations in that embassy exchange. And I'm sure he especially remembered that one thing that stuck out like a sore thumb. The fact that he had openly told the U.S. embassy personnel that he was going to provide military secrets to the Soviets as part of his planned entry into the Soviet Union. Now that much time had passed after that bravado comment, Oswald knew the potential boomerang that he had created and that it could be headed right back toward him now. He knew that making such a statement could land him in deep trouble, put him at legal risk, potentially, if he ever were to have decided to come back to the U.S. The Soviets had no extradition treaty with the U.S., so it was pretty safe to do so initially, if you thought you were never coming back to the U.S. But if you ever changed your mind, well then, 
that could be a problem. Could be a big problem. In that case, one could be subject to prosecution as a traitor for treason. So the logical thing for Oswald to do would be to reach out and ensure that the U.S. had no plans to pursue legal action against him as he began his re-entry into the United States. The Russians claim that the radio codes and other information that Oswald offered up was no find to Russia. Not something all that valuable. Old news, so to speak. But nevertheless, the offering up of this information and any other sensitive information that Oswald possibly had in his possession at that time was a crime. Period. A crime that someone such as Oswald would be prosecuted for. In the end, the U.S. government did not pursue him legally. And this alone is one of the most curious facts of the assassination story. And it remains a real mystery, even to this day, the true facts surrounding Oswald's re-entry into the United States after his time in Russia. What does this mean, we all wonder? Was Oswald actually a U.S. spy? And was the entire initial incident a hoax that our government intelligence agencies were involved in or supported? And well, if it's not that, then was it just the U.S. government's conclusion that they should let Oswald, the defector, back into the country where he could be studied, watched, debriefed, and otherwise used to understand more about the Soviet system? The U.S. government may have also contemplated that he was possibly now an intelligence asset of the Soviet Union, converted as part of his stay. Well, that's all speculation at this point, and we'll learn more about Oswald's relationship to the CIA in future episodes. But there is no denying that this was a high-profile and unusual circumstance, and Oswald was about ready to make it more interesting, and perhaps, on the surface, make it look even more like a well-designed Russian counterintelligence operation. Within months of beginning this process to leave the Soviet Union, he would meet and begin dating the woman that he would eventually propose to and marry, Marina Prusikova. And that would mean bringing a Russian bride back with him to the United States. It was an established counterintelligence technique to have a defector marry a local woman. Perhaps in this case, it might be a Russian KGB spy or informant. And then have that woman then make her way back and into the foreign country as the wife of that defector. That is, a defector that was, for whatever reason, returning home, and then, of course, the new wife would then be in a position to function as a sleeper cell in that counterintelligence world. I'm not making judgment here as to whether that applies to Marina Oswald. I am simply pointing out that this was a counterintelligence technique of the Soviets and Americans in this era. On February 28th, Richard Snyder wrote Oswald and told him that Oswald was going to have to appear in person at the U.S. consulate in order to resolve the request. Only there was one problem. Oswald couldn't leave Minsk without the Russians' permission. And certainly, this was not something that Oswald was going to trumpet to the Russians about at that moment. Oswald wrote back to Snyder and explained his prohibition on leaving Minsk and asked if the entire matter could be resolved by mail. But Snyder and his crew at the U.S. Embassy were not having it. After what had gone on, they wanted Oswald to appear in person at the U.S. Embassy in Moscow, and they wanted to be able to speak with him directly and make their own inquiries and assessments as to whether Oswald had, in his own mind, given up his U.S. citizenship already or not. 
Eventually, Oswald would be allowed to travel to Moscow to meet with Snyder. Oswald, of course, had made this inquiry to the U.S. Embassy by letter, and it appears that the first letter he sent never made it. It was perhaps intercepted by the Soviets, who were reading his mail as part of their general reconnaissance of him. Whether it was this letter or the second letter that Oswald wrote in February that tipped the Soviets off to Oswald's intention to return to the U.S., well, it's not known. But what did happen as a result was that the Soviets cut off a portion of his financial funding at that moment. Quite coincidental. The subsidies that Oswald was receiving from the so-called Red Cross, they were cut off. It is believed by many researchers that the only person Oswald told about this request being sent to the U.S. Embassy was Alexander Zeiger, one of the few men who had befriended Oswald early on during his time at the radio factory. This was but one new mini-season that Oswald would have to endure as he turned his own ship about and began the quest to make his way back to the United States. It wasn't very much longer, and during this, when Oswald was exchanging letters with the U.S. Embassy, that he would meet Marina Prusikova. In his historic diary, dated March 17th, he would write, I and Ernst went to the trade union dance. It was boring, but at last... At the last hour, I am introduced to a girl with a French hairdo and red dress with white slippers. I dance with her. Her name is Marina. We like each other right away. Of course now, we know the ending to this story. Oswald would marry Marina, but who was she? She was only 19 years old at the time, and she was actually a pharmacology student who worked at a local hospital. She was not living with her parents. Her mother had her out of wedlock, and she really never knew her father. And then her mother died when Marina was only 15. Her mother had already remarried at the time of her mother's death, and the relationship with the stepfather was not good. So she moved from Leningrad to Minsk in August of 1959. Oswald, from a love perspective, was definitely on a rebound from his rejection by Ella German, and Marina was beautiful. The entries in Oswald's historic diary during this time clearly indicated that. One such passage stated that he had married Marina to hurt Ella. But wait a minute. We are getting ahead of ourselves here. Let's fill in the blanks a little on their marriage. You see, the day after Oswald met Marina at the dance, he would be admitted to a Soviet hospital again, only this time to have his adenoids removed. He actually asked Marina to stop by to visit him while he was there. Hospital stays were longer in those days than they are today, and to his surprise, she showed up. And not once, but every day. Whether it was a pity visit or whether it was because she liked him and was intrigued by this American, well, it probably was a little bit of both. And he had his own apartment, too. And for the average person in Minsk, this was something to covet. Oswald was released in a few days, and he and Marina began to see each other regularly. But much to everyone's surprise, after only about a month of dating, they were married on April 20, 1961, at the Minsk Registry Office. Whether it was the rebound that Oswald had just suffered, or the emotional needs of a 19-year-old with a broken home life in her past, or the KGB at work to arrange the marriage, well, we may never know. One thing we do know is that despite many researchers' suspicions about this marriage, 
Marina never showed up in Oswald's KGB file as an informant or an agent of the KGB. Such absence is not surprising in my opinion, because if she had been shown in the file as one of these things, either an informant or an agent, well, given the assassination, my guess is that probably that information would have been expunged or destroyed before the Americans were allowed to see it. And I am not saying that is the case. I am simply saying that is probably what they would have done had it been the case. And the Americans were allowed to see it years later during the thawing of the Cold War. Unfortunately, the logical explanation is the simplest and likely the most true. Two young people attracted to each other, so why not? Why not get married? And one other attraction for Marina was the peculiar attraction of Lee being American and the fantasies that she seemed to have, at least at the time, about America and Americans and the better way of life that she thought America might have to offer. The next fact is telling. Oswald married Marina without telling her that he was in the middle of going home, going back to the United States, and that he had already contacted the U.S. Embassy seeking passage back to the U.S. He finally told her these facts, and he did so sometime in June, not long after the wedding. Marina was surprised that Oswald had not told her about his plans. In fact, it probably startled her when she learned of it after their wedding. And in Marina's own words, she said that Lee lied to her about these plans at first. But it's not entirely clear about Marina's true desires when it came to immigrating to the U.S. And there is some speculation that perhaps she married Lee to actually obtain a passport and leave the country for a better life. There are some of Oswald's friends who more or less believe just that, including Ernst Titovitz and Pavel Golovachev. She did encourage Oswald to continue to seek permission to leave Russia. Was that because she was hoping that the Russians wouldn't let her go and that would be an elegant way of proclaiming cold feet about Oswald? Or was it just a plain offering encouragement to Oswald as he began this journey back to the U.S. and began to make the pivot? There are some who say that she, too, secretly craved living in the United States, and luck and some patience would make it possible as she, too, was eventually granted the ability to leave Russia. In her later testimony, she would reflect that maybe she didn't love Alec as much as she should have during that time frame. But hindsight is twenty twenty, isn't it? Given this new and emerging event for Oswald, around mid-May, he would write the U.S. Embassy and inform them of his marriage to Marina, and also to ask formally whether the government had any plans to attempt to charge him with any major crime associated with his attempted sale of state secrets to the Russians. As the new Oswald couple would wait for the process to matriculate, the bickering and dislike would start amongst them, almost immediately after marriage. Oswald would do what he could to avoid it, he bought a camera and took up photography, and he also bought a radio so that he could listen to Voice of America broadcasts. He would also join the Plants Hunting Club, and he went out on several hunting episodes before he tired of it. Marina began to complain, and she lodged one of those complaints with a neighbor whose name was Maya Gertsevich. The complaints would be familiar to anyone observing a problematic marriage. Oswald was controlling, bickered with her constantly, and she pointed out that he did not make much money at his job, so she thought. 
and he was demanding in peculiar ways, including keeping her from wearing any makeup. Regardless of all of this, the young couple got pregnant almost immediately, and while they were elated to be having a child, there were cracks in the marriage and they were getting deeper. Marina was definitely having second thoughts about the marriage already. Purportedly, she did not enjoy sex with him, and in an early on argument, Oswald asked her if she wanted a divorce, and her answer was, maybe. To which Oswald retorted, I should have married Ella. Thank you for listening to episode 109 of JFK, The Enduring Secret.